Everyone, welcome to another awesome day with a struggle. I'm Sean Lee. And I'm James Park. We're here to discuss the reality of daily struggles and how it's a constant no matter where we are on our journey. Join us for honest conversations as we navigate life, business, and career challenges. Learn how to accept the struggles and how it's all about the mindset. This week, we talk a lot. <laughs> we talk a lot about. <laughs> gratitude that we've been talking about from the past week and how how we shape our worldviews. And more importantly, we talk about the idea of patience and trust and how trust is foundational to a lot of things that we do in life. Enjoy the episode. What's up, everyone? We have a special guest with us today. You might not hear her. She might not be able to say much. Or you might hear her. You maybe will hear her, Sean's daughter, Mila. Do you want to say hi? Mila, you want to say hi? Nope. Nope. Okay. She's a little shy right now, so maybe you'll hear her later on, but she's going to be with us sitting on Sean's lap. So welcome to another week, everyone. I think some big news that we want to start off with is we've rebranded a little bit. Well, not necessarily rebranded. We just dropped the startup. (laughs) Yeah. I think we mentioned why we called it Startup Struggles way at the beginning of the show. And the, and the reason why we did that was because when people think about startups, right, it's all about like entrepreneurship, an individual person working on some kind of goal or mission that they have. And in Sean's case, that was very true. Running a company, multiple companies, they're all little startups that he's been working on. And for me, the startup, when I think of startups, is the startup of you. You as an individual, you are a startup. Everything that you're doing is for yourself. But as we recorded more of these episodes, we kind of realized that it's a little misleading, right? It can be misunderstood. And we wanted to talk more broadly. As the weeks went by, we were talking very broadly about our struggles in life, whether it's at a company, at a startup, the startup of you. And so we've... Um, rebranded a little bit and just dropped startup. And now we're just calling it the struggles. Yep. Just to really give that leeway, I think I think what we realized too along the way, and I think this is why we started the podcast in the, in the beginning was really to focus on mental health, whether it's mental health in a startup, which at the time, which I mean, even to this day, but especially at that time during the pandemic, it was like a hot topic in Silicon Valley, mental health of Silicon Valley as a whole and the country as a whole. But yeah, I, I just think we, we wanted to broaden it to every, every aspect of our lives that mental health and, and struggling touches. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's one thing that um, we did this week. So the logo is going to look a little bit different in your podcast player. So don't be surprised by that. If you hate the logo, let us know. I just <laughs> did it up for free in Canva. <laughs> <laughs> and then aside from that, I've been like talking about this for a while. I finally pulled the trigger on it. I've been wanting to put out a newsletter and initially it's supposed to be like a personal newsletter, but I was like, you know what? Why not tie it to this? Because all I talk about are my struggles anyway. And so it'll just be like one side, right? Whenever James has time to write, he can put out his you know side of his struggles in a newsletter form. But the biggest reason I wanted to put out the newsletter was because I realized uh, as I was talking to a buddy of mine who's been encouraging me to write for years and 
and uh, he helped me set up my blog and like a really simplistic minimalist website and I never stuck to it. And I think one of the reasons was I don't think anybody was reading it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, I told him that in our kind of back and forth emails. He was like, it shouldn't matter if anybody reads it, just write. Use writing as a form of therapy and journaling and whatnot. And I didn't disagree. Like, I, I actually do write. I do write privately. But if that's the point, then why do I put it on a website? Like, I just keep it in my day one journal. But I still have this desire to like write outside of my journal in a way where I can share it with people. And if I want to share it with people, then I hope somebody reads it, right? And it took me a while to realize why that even matters. And so I, I, I told them when I wrote my first you know, newsletter, I said, it's because of what we've been talking about, this aspect of community, of wanting to build community and have community. And so the reason why I want anybody to read it is so that I can spark conversation. I don't just want things to go out there into the void. Like I actually want it to go to the people that I want to have conversations with. I thought it was maybe like a digital age thing, but it's not. It's just the fact that when you're far from people, right? Even James, you're like, you know, an hour and a half away from me. And a lot of my friends are in LA or in San Francisco and Michigan. It's just like, everybody lives far away. It's just really hard to stay in touch despite all the advancements we have today for multitude of reasons we can talk about later. But I was like, I actually do care that people read it because I want to spark conversation. I want a reason to like, to talk to somebody, mm -hmm. you know, or for someone to, to respond to me. And even if it's just like one person a month, that's still better than, than right now, you know, <laughs> than nobody. One of the things you mentioned actually about even doing this podcast was that it was a form of letting other people know how you were doing. Yeah if they tuned into multiple or just one, it was a form of communication, giving updates on week to week, what's happened in your life. And speaking of which, one of my friends who had no idea she was actually still listening to this. Hey, Jean, what's up? Thanks for still listening. But she gave us some feedback the other day. Nice. She was talking about how she was listening to the episodes back to back. Yeah. And she noticed from listening to one of the earlier episodes and then one of our most recent ones, she said that we have become much more comfortable in our discussions uh. and that it really just sounds like we're two friends having a normal conversation about yeah. real life stuff that was going on. So thank you, Gene, for that feedback. Oh, that's cool. We're 55 episodes in. I, I hope we're, we have some kind of chemistry. Yeah, I hope we're friends now. <laughs> Even though it wasn't like a big deal, I literally like sent it out to six people. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> but but I was just really happy about it. There's Miles. Because part of the reason I got inspired too, because I was working on my annual update. I have a couple of friends that send down an annual update in an email form. And I really appreciate those. And I've been wanting to do one for like years. Hmm. And the reason, which I actually write about, and you'll read about this, but our listeners probably wouldn't hear about this, is that I do quarterly, at least quarterly, if not monthly, if not you know, yearly, I guess, check-ins with everybody. But it's just like you get so little time to catch up that so much gets missed. And there is so much that happens in my life that I don't share on social media, mostly because I'm not on social media, but you know, the few times I do share, it's like 
golf or skiing, you know, like I don't share anything else really. And so even when my friends share, there's so much that I don't see behind the scenes. They're curating what they want us to see. Mm -hmm. And why is this important? I realize that relationships are built on a foundation of communication, especially with our parents. And when you don't have enough communication, there is room for misunderstanding. There's like an information debt, as I call it, where it creates a gap. And that gap just widens over time because there's this information gap, right? Where you really don't know like not only what that person's up to, but like who they are, what their interests are. You start losing touch with that person basically. And these annual updates, as kind of simple as they are, it's a great tool to keep me updated on like an entire year of your life. And then at least like, even if I don't speak to you often, like at least I'm somewhat caught up with you. And it closes that gap just a little bit where I still feel close to you. I still feel close to that person, even though I don't see them often, even though I don't talk to them often. You know, when they send out those annual updates, I always respond. Like I always get something out of it. I always enjoy reading it. And so I thought, why don't I start doing this? And I've been trying to do this for, for three years, haven't done one. This is the first year I started. And uh, I mean, it's already February, <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, fuck it, who cares? And because the biggest hurdle actually was to come up with the list. And so as I was coming up with the list, it started with like 30 people. I was like, wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And then it grew to like 50. I was like, holy shit, that's a lot of people. And now it's up to like 80 people. And I was like, damn. There's a lot of people I want to keep up with, actually. Like, I want to keep them in my lives. Mm -hmm. And I can't force them to write me an annual update. So I'm going to provide mine and hopefully inspire someone as well to, to do it or to just reach out and call me, <laughs> you know, be like, hey, that's cool. Thanks for the update. So that, that's something I'm, I'm kind of excited about. So I did start writing, I've compiled the list. And then out of that list, that's what also inspired this newsletter because I was like, there's actually a few people in here that I want to stay in touch on an even more frequent basis. Hmm. I think newsletters are perfect for that. Unlike a, a web blog or a website is that it's a push service. It's not a pull. That person doesn't have to think about coming to my website to pull the information. I push it to them. They can consume it whether they want it or not. That, that, like, that's totally up to them, but at least they get it. And there's few people that I actually, I know they wouldn't care if I push you know, a newsletter to them, but it's a great way to stay in touch in a detailed way without these hour-long calls or like text messages. Not that I don't like those, but it's just like, it's hard to have those. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about kind of the annual update stuff, you reminded me of James Clear's integrity reports. Mm. He used to write kind of a yearly report on how, how his year went. I think he stopped it. He only wrote three that I can see on his website. He just answered three main questions. Yeah, part of the other thing I actually wanted to include, and I thought about this morning, James, I'm glad you bring that up. I wanted to include some goals for the year or two at the end, just very briefly. Yeah. As a form of accountability. So that when I do check in or hang out with friends and be like, hey, how's that thing going that you said you're going to do? I think it's good to have some kind of accountability too, especially again, you know, I don't have a local community here in Irvine and I listed out, you know, all the reasons preventing me in my first newsletter. But I realized like, it's not like I don't have a community. It's just that they're, they're far away and I need to make this effort to maintain that community. So yeah, that's what's been going on in my week, which is a little ironic. So I was like, damn, I don't feel like I got anything done this week. It's been a heck of a week. 
Why was it a heck of a week? It was tougher because I realized like in-laws are, they're getting tired more easily. They're getting older and I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but everything's a, a blessing and a curse, right? Everything is a double-edged sword. And I always knew this, like having in-laws, like obviously they're helping us so much with the kids, but you know, at a certain point, even with my own parents, they're going to need our help. We're going to have to help take care of them. I don't think we've exactly reached that point yet, but it is something that I do, I'm very cognizant of. And so there's a couple of meetings this week. Mink was working all week too, so she was busy. And there's a couple of meetings that I was supposed to take up in LA with you know investors and advisors. And I just had to cancel. I was like, I can't afford to go four hours up to LA or five hours up to LA. I have to you know stay home and help out. But I think that's tough on my ego sometimes because I'm just like, I want to be productive. This goes kind of back to what we were talking about last week where I just have to feel grateful for A, the help that we have, B, you know, the fact that I can say no or change those things and stay home and like be with the kids and take care of the kids. And and then on top of that, just like dealing with a toddler. <laughs> yeah. It's a great way to practice gratitude. Oh, yeah. It seems like that's the the biggest kind of lesson and the takeaway from all of this is like you started and said right at the beginning, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Everything's a blessing and a curse. You just have to like look for the blessing constantly. I think that's that's the practice of gratitude. It's like, what is the blessing? Like this morning I was like so pissed off with not pissed, yeah. I was kind of annoyed with Miles because you know, it's like holding Mila and feeding her and she was like pretty chill this morning, thank God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As she is right now, just staring at me, literally, just like, look at her, just staring at me. And Miles is like, I made him breakfast and just refused to eat or drink anything. And I was like, dude, WTF. And I like, I took a step back, be like, why are you so annoyed? Like, why, why do you care? He's not going to starve himself to death. Like, why do you care if he eats or not? Right. And I was like, oh, like, I care because Mink's going to get annoyed, like, that he didn't eat. And when she finds out and just like, and then she'll be like super stressed out about it. And I'll be like, ah, then I'll be stressed out about it because she's stressed out about it, you know? And I was like, hold on a second. Like, he's fine. He's totally fine. Like, he's happy. He's just playing. Like, he's just doing his thing. Like, maybe he's just not hungry this morning. I just had like a couple of crumbs of bread or the edge of the peanut butter jelly sandwich I made him because you know, he doesn't like the crusts or something. I just ate the crusts. I didn't eat that much. Nobody's like mad at me or stressed about me not eating enough. And then on top of that, you know, he, he had a poop. And so maybe that's why, you know, he was full of poop. He just wasn't hungry, <laughs> which is a biological fact. You know, it's, it's, there's so many things that obviously he can't communicate to me yet as to why. And then I just get all worked up about it because I'm projecting my fears or my anxieties and onto him or my wants more than anything. It's like, I want you to eat, right? I want you to do this right now. And he's just like, no, <laughs> that's what he says. And the way he says no is like the cutest. He doesn't say like, no. You know, he's like, no. <laughs> he's just like, I think he learns it from us. You can't even like get mad at him because you're just like, Miles, eat your breakfast, drink juice. No. <laughs> like, you're like, I guess you're not even sure of your answer, you know. <laughs> you know, what's really interesting about this is we've talked about Miles eating the types of food he likes to eat, doesn't like to eat, or when he likes to eat or not. I think it was, might have been a month ago, and how it created so much anxiety for you and Mink, because obviously you want your kid to eat, but when he's not eating, 
you're so worried that he's going to starve to death or something, right? Yeah. Or he's going to be, you know, fall behind. He's going to have malnutrition. Yeah. But how you're dealing with it now, it seems very, even though it's only been a month, it seems you're catching yourself much faster. I think the tougher thing with, and this is the, the biggest struggle when you're raising a child is you have a partner. I've said this before, like the difficulty, the challenge in parenting is not the child. The child is just being the child. They're perfectly normal. They're doing just great. The problem is the parents. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Uh, sorry, we, I guess we didn't intend to talk about this today, but this is all related. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme here that I'll touch upon. Yeah, if I don't trust you, we're just going to cut this out. It actually, it actually <laughs> comes around trust. Oh. It centers on trust. And I'll tell you this in a second because Pierre shared this with me yesterday. He had a revelation or somebody, one of his you know, gurus told him this, that patience as a virtue, patience as a skill depends on trust. And it took me a moment to like realize how profound that statement is. It's such a simple statement because a lot of times with a lot of things that we experience in life, the whole basis of anxiety is that you don't feel patient. We have a lot of anxieties where we're just like, oh my gosh, like, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Like, we don't have the patience to see it out, to let the fears play out. And we don't have the patience because we don't trust the process. We don't trust that things are going to be fine. Perfect example is around Miles. Irvine School District has these like free speech assistance programs. And Miles is, he has an amazing vocabulary. I don't think he's speech delayed, but by some standards, I guess, of comparison of boys his age, it's like he has some kind of expression delay. He's not using his words to like tell you what he wants. He has like a fantastic vocabulary of nouns, but he's not using verbs as much, right? Okay. <laughs> like he just understood how to like communicate yes and no at like three. There's some kids that are like speaking full sentences, like, you know, and he's just like communicating yes and no now. But is he delayed? I don't think so. He is advanced in other areas and maybe compared to somebody he has delayed. And what was funny was like I dropped him off at his like speech class every Tuesday, Thursday. I never noticed before, but I noticed that day, this was on Thursday, I was like, why are they all boys? <laughs> <laughs> is that normal? I think it is normal. I mean, because oh. like, well, typically girls like the speech comes sooner, which is true. Like on average, girls talk sooner than boys do. There are some boys that talk very soon, but on average, girls talk sooner. And I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, then what's the big deal? I'll give you an example, a parallel. When we're teenagers, girls grow faster than boys, right? Like, remember like in eighth grade, like every freaking girl is like taller than you. Everyone was always taller than me. Well, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> girls like go through this like crazy spurt before boys do. That's just a biological thing that happens. Like most girls grow tall sooner than boys and boys grow taller, end up growing taller later on, right? But nobody in middle school is just like, dude, we got to send our boys to growth therapy, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're, they're delayed, you know, <laughs> like everybody understands it's like boys just grow a little bit later. Huh. But for some unknown reason, when it comes to like super early age stuff, like there's so much fear around like delays in your head, you're just like, projecting like, oh, if I don't do something now, like this is going to compound, like the compounding effect down the road is going to snowball. These are all like fears that, as adults that we project onto our children. When like the reality may just be, he's just developing this part of his brain a little bit later than everybody else. 
Like it's totally fine. And of course there are exceptions, right? But those exceptions are like literally like less than 1%. 99.9% of kids are like, just let them be. And why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because of trust. Because at the end of the day, what bothers me about myself and about parenting, us parents sometimes, that we don't have the trust that Miles is doing what he's supposed to do at his age, that he knows his body, he knows his own development. And in turn, we don't have any patience for him. We don't have any patience for him to give him the space, be like, hey, you tell us when you're hungry. You tell us what you want to eat. And that idea carries into so many aspects of our struggles. I mean, James shared with me right before we started how there's some you know milestones that he was just like right at the cusp of hitting. You've been doing fantastic for like weeks, just killing it. But you're just like just shy of like that goal that you wanted to, to reach. Yeah. And then you were like so upset on Friday with yourself. And what I would say was just like, you're lacking the patience to see it through. But why do you lack the patience? You lack the patience because you lack the trust in yourself that this trend will continue upwards, that this trend will continue, that you will break that barrier, that you will recross that goal and hit a new goal. That for me was just like a big aha moment yesterday because I was like, a lot of my anxiety is around my urgency to like be more successful or like to build a more impactful company that can hire more people and create more jobs that like literally bedevil me. Like I'm not like living up to my potential. Well, it's because I don't trust myself. I don't trust that I will do it someday. And when I questioned that, I was like, is that true? Do I really not trust that I have the ability to continue like doing? No, 99.9% certainty that I am capable of doing more in my lifetime. Well, then be patient. I like that. Having patience means that you are trusting that you will eventually get to where you need to get to. It does mean, though, that you have to be putting in the work. The 76ers, Philadelphia 76ers, it was always about trusting the process. It was a basketball team. They were the worst team in the league for so long. Well, maybe not the worst team, but they were pretty bad. And they all focused around this one concept of trusting the process. And they had to have patience because it took years for them to be relevant. But it's also put in a lot of the work to get to where they are now. And it might take much longer than you actually ever thought. It's like even like adjustments that you have to make, lessons that you learn every single day, changing your process slightly to be more effective, efficient. As human beings, we'll like see the outliers and we'll take that as the norm. That's how fears are created and fears are driven. And like we have to check. And that, that's the one thing we have to check ourselves. And human beings are known to be terrible statisticians. Like 80% of statistics are made up on the spot. Like that one. You know, <laughs> like, like no joke. Like human beings are terrible statisticians. Just the fact that like people are more afraid of sharks than like deer, right? Even though more people die from like deer accidents than like from getting eaten by a shark. Wait, what? Really? <laughs> yeah. Dude, like so many people die from like getting killed by deer and car accidents, obviously. Okay, okay. They're not attacking you. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, what? Car accidents. Sorry. I, I, okay. Dude, you're from the Midwest. I thought you would understand this. <laughs> like, Oh, no. Yeah, in the, sorry. In the Midwest, like, you literally <laughs> see a dead deer in car accident like every week. Yeah. My mom got hit by a deer. See? So it's like, seriously, more people die from like deer than sharks. 
statistically. More people die from car accidents than airplanes, statistically, right? But how much fear do you have of airplanes than cars? Yeah. There's some psychological term for it. Is it cognitive bias? I don't know. It's probably a mix of a bunch of things. Cognitive bias, recency bias. Yeah. What is your whole mindset? Top of mind, basically. Like, yeah. What's most relevant? Yeah. Or just most shocking, too. And that's how the news works, right? It's like, what's most shocking? What's going to grab your attention? Not like what's most probable. But going back, I think even more so with social media, with the digital age, I think there's an erosion of trust. There's an erosion of trust in society, in ourselves. And I think that's what the biggest detriment of, of mental health is. There's an erosion of trust in yourself. Okay. So I, I took two things from what you just said. An erosion of trust in society and an erosion of trust in yourself. So are you, are you saying that it's harder to trust in yourself because you just don't know what's true anymore? Like you're almost not trusting in yourself because of they're separate. I think those two things are separate. Yeah. I think there's, there's some influence, but. So people don't trust themselves, but also it's just hard to trust what's out on the news or social media. Who knows what's true and what's not? And who knows what the news is trying to tell you? Right. I just finished Einstein's uh, biography and, you know, they talk about the 1900s into the, you know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, when Einstein lived through both, you know, world wars. And then subsequently through like the whole like Red Scare and like McCarthy era and whatnots. And you're just like, wow, there are so many shittier periods, frankly, than what we're going through right now. And people still made it through. Yeah, I would, I would say a world war is much worse than the current war, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> if you're comparing the two, yeah. Someone asked me that question once, would you rather live in this time or, or a time in the past? I think that's a terrible question. Yeah. <laughs> I say it's terrible because the philosophers will all tell you that you, you can only live in this time. So don't even think about it. <laughs> you can't live another time. Yeah. I can't even compare what it's like. You just don't know. Are you kidding me? Like my parents were like, when you were born, we had no bathrooms. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they like shared a communal bathroom, you know, it was back in communist China back in the eighties. My grandma worked for the government. And so they like, they had a lot of privileges. They live in really nice I guess, apartment blocks or whatnots. That was only like 38 years ago. <laughs> and there's still a lot of places in the world that are like, still like that. And just like, no, I don't want to live in those times. Are you effing kidding me? Like, <laughs> I don't care how like better it was. Like, it's definitely better now. I don't care how divided this country is right now. You should see how divided this country was like in the 70s, right? In the 60s. In the 50s with like McCarthyism and like how like we were like so close to like being a surveillance state because there was a red scare and so anybody could be arrested. Anybody could be labeled a communist and fucking killed. That post-World War II. But one of the things that like Einstein, the book ended on this was just like, that's one thing about the United States and democracy. I do believe this is that it's a very resilient concept. The constitution is very resilient. It's gone through so much crap. And what we're going through right now is not even the worst of it. It's going to figure itself out. I mean, did you know that like back in the 20s and 30s, again, bring back to Einstein, like Henry Ford was like an anti-Semitic people of influence, of power. John D. Rockefeller, they were like all anti-Semites. And they were like some of the most powerful people in this country. 
It's not surprising. It's not. But this country, like, will fight back for what's right because we can, unlike many other places. Long story short, I'm just very hopeful. There's really no other way to live. Are you being patient and trusting the process? <laughs> I am being very patient. Yes, I actually am. So from a societal standpoint, from a, not just societal, from a global standpoint, I trust that things will work out. I trust that human beings have a desire to live so that we don't launch nukes and blow each other up. And if we do, I'll be dead anyways. And who cares? You know, like <laughs> it'll, it'll happen like before I even know it. Like if things really went to shit, just like, eh. But if they don't, then why burden myself with that misery ahead of time, right? Before it happens. I didn't think that we'd, we'd be talking about this. <laughs> so my immediate thought is, I wouldn't say I'm opposite of you, but I trust that the people in wealth want to keep their wealth. And that would mean they don't want nuclear war. However, I don't trust that people in wealth are willing to help humanity as a whole. I just think that people who are wealthy want to keep it for themselves. And that is their top priority. Yeah, I don't disagree, but they don't make up the world. Yeah, they're less than a percent. Yeah, yeah. But I think we talked about this. Wealthy people like trying to get into bunkers and whatnots and try to survive, like outlast everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's impossible because they could have all the bunkers they want. They could have all the security they want. But the moment the world ends, their money will be worth nothing and all their security personnel will, will kill them and then just survive. It would be based on food at that point, commodities. Right, because there's no chain of command. There's no chain. They have no like authority. In a world where currency is valuable, they have authority. In a world where there is no currency, they will have no authority. Right, which is why they're motivated not to have nuclear war. So keep things at status quo. I mean, that's one force. I do believe there's more than one force that you know makes this world go round. Because again, as misaligned as, let's say like Facebook, for example, Facebook is so fucked up. But at the end of the day, they want to survive as a company. So they have to make a better product. They have to be more responsible. They have to be more accountable. And the, the Congress will have to remove you know, Section 230, where like platforms are not held responsible for what they do, for what people on their platforms or their users do. I do believe there will be adjustments, regardless of what rich people want or don't want. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, this is my perspective as an entrepreneur too, as a business owner. It's like, yeah, I'm my own boss, but like my customers are my boss too, because they keep me alive. And that's the beauty of capitalism is that, you know, at the end of the day, like money talks and money comes from the masses still. You're not self-sufficient. A billionaire does not grow their own food. They're not a billionaire because they do it all by themselves. They're a billionaire because there's a society that exists that thrives where their billions are worth something. My point is like, they're not as all powerful and like, they're so dependent on like society that long-term, sure, they can be selfish, but sometimes selfishness will still turn good. It's a cycle for me. It's like their cycles are like selfishness, like these ultra wealthy selfishness will like destroy society or make society bad. But then like the selfishness will, will still turn it around and be like, no, we have to keep the show going and we have to help society, you know? Otherwise, their existence will be threatened. I hope people who are really looking to help society get into positions of power. Yeah. And, and on top of that, 
we're entering a cycle where like it's going to become profitable and this is again the beauty of capitalism the resiliency of capitalism is that we're entering a cycle where like it's going to be profitable to be x to do x we just weren't creative enough to think of that yet and esng right environmental social and governance we're finding out like for governance for example we're finding out there's a benefit to becoming more diverse because we can sell to more people there's a capitalistic gain to doing that in an environmental standpoint we have figured out that there are financial new financial instruments where we can incentivize people to make money off of investing into forest conservancy and watershed conservancy because that will prevent forest fires that are going to burn our billion dollar homes that are going to cost us like 10x as much as if we just like spent a billion earlier on people are like starting to figure these things out because again from a capitalistic standpoint there's a profit to be made and that's the two-sided coin of capitalism it's like there's a shitty side the exploitative like the destructive and then there's a creative like the making things better granted it's a cycle and this is what i tell every entrepreneur it's like the beauty of entrepreneurship and capitalism is like you're going to have an endless supply of problems because every solution creates a new problem and sometimes that problem is good it's a good problem sometimes it's a terrible problem you know like global warming but it's going to create a problem when you solve global warming and people are like oh like we have all the energy we want then you're going to like probably have a huge population growth because we're like we can sustain more people right and that's going to create a new problem it's like all right shit we got to go colonize another planet we'll create that solution now we're going to go fuck something else up it's going to create a new problem but that's just the nature of life and but at the core of it though capitalism drives that because as long as there's a profit to be earned people will go after it unlike every other society like china or whatnot it's like there's no incentive the incentive just like to keep your upper ups happy anyway comes down to i have trust in the process there are things i realized james that i didn't have trust in the process with my life around entrepreneurship around parenting and there areas where i do have trust i have trust in society i have trust in, in the world and life in general how the world turns i have trust in the sun and the solar system that a fucking meteor is not going to come tomorrow <laughs> you know like meteoroid what are those called yeah meteoroids are the ones that hit the earth i have trust i have general trust that like people are like even though they're shitty drivers here in irvine that overall i'm a good driver i trust that i'm aware so i'm not going to get an accident and in turn i have patience around all those things and now i need to kind of translate that skill over to my work career my career life and then my parenting life as well hmm. maybe we can talk more about uh how you actually build trust because trust is kind of when i'm thinking about it it's faith especially if you don't really have control over it we don't have control over whether the sun comes up or not whether something from space is going to hit earth we don't control that And so a lot of times when you're not able to control something how do you trust in it in a way like that's what a lot of religions are you have to believe in something it's not like a tangible belief that you can hold on to Thanks for asking this question I actually I have a very straightforward answer I think there's two aspects of faith and trust one aspect is this daily mental maintenance spirituality whatever form of spirituality practice in all the books we've been reading about being able to have clarity on what is the reality right loving what is not having this distorted view of what things are 
my child is delayed. He's fucked up. My child is a problem child. They're like da da da. You know, like having a concrete reality of like what is the reality, and that's a mental practice. There's a bunch of books we've been talking about, but another book that influenced me very early on is this book Factfulness. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. Oh, you got to check this book out. Factfulness by Hans Rosling. I forgot where I bought this. It was it was only published in um, in Europe, and I, I think I was in Europe at the time when I bought this at the airport. I guess Barack Obama is at the top of this quote. A hopeful book about the potential for human progress when we work off facts rather than our inherent biases. Factfulness. 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. <laughs> like literally, that's the subtitle of this book. And this guy, he's dead now, but he talks about, <laughs> well, because he, he was old, not for any other reason, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know why I left it there. I'm sorry. Because he cites facts on so many things that we think is wrong. Like for example, the shark and the deer example. I don't think he brings that up, but listen to the the table of contents, the gap instinct, the negativity instinct, the straight line instinct, the fear instinct, the size instinct, the generalization instinct. It basically talks about all these biases and and then he brings up facts like the gap instinct. Is it true that like life 20 years ago was better than today? He brings up the facts like no it wasn't. <laughs> Stop thinking that. You know, like poverty is so much less than now and so on and so forth. And it just like, I was like, oh, didn't know that. Some of these questions, like test yourself. In all low-income countries across the world today, how many girls finish primary school? A, 20%, B, 40%, C, 60%. Most people would think like maybe 20%, 40%. It's like, no, it's actually really high. Where does the majority of the world population live? Low-income countries, middle-income countries, high-income countries be like probably low-income countries? It's like, no, actually, they live in, I think, middle to high-income countries. That's reality. It's like basically like the world isn't as shitty as we think it is. In the last 20 years, the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty has A, almost doubled, B, remained more or less the same, C, almost halved. The answer is C, it's almost halved. Life expectancy is up. Anyway, factfulness. So to sum it up, one way is to look at it from a spiritual perspective and a, like a mental, like keeping your, your mind clear as to what is the reality, right? And the other is to like just understand that we have statistical biases. What is the real statistics on that belief? And I think one other thing that's helped me a lot, James, is talking to people from other countries, especially from China. Like we hear like things are so shitty in China. And I go over there, it's like, no, it's not. And then like everybody in China thinks like, we don't go to the movies. Like, we don't go outside because there's just like a fucking mass shooting every. I mean, there is a lot, right? But, but it's just like, no, like movie theaters are not getting shot up every single week. Again, not to belittle any of this stuff, it's important to recognize. And this is the, the challenging thing that I think about. I was like, well, how do I reconcile that, not ignorance, but that like realistic understanding of what is real with what actually needs help? Because for me to say like, oh, gun violence is statistically not a thing. Like, it doesn't mean it's not important to tackle it. It just puts it into the proper perspective as like, all right, I don't need to fear this walking out my door every single day. But is, a, is it a big problem? Yes, it's a big problem that gun control needs to be tackled. But statistically, I'm not going to get shot today. And if I do, go buy a fucking lottery ticket. <laughs> when people say like, a lot of people live in a fog or they live behind a veil. There are certain aspects of it that I think we do. 
And can someone say like, oh, Sean, you just live with, you know, rose colored glasses on. It's like, maybe, but let's look at the facts. Well, you and I, we also live in an area that is much nicer than the rest of the world. And again, let's look at the facts. You'd be surprised. Do you live in Irvine? I know, but you'd be surprised. Like, for example, is like when I tell people I'm traveling to Brazil or to like Colombia or to like Argentina, be like, oh my God, it's so dangerous. I'm like, dude, do you know how dangerous? It's more dangerous than like South LA and South Chicago than like some places statistically. I agree. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we are living in a veil because we just live in a nice place. The reason I'm saying that is like, then if you're saying that, then you're assuming that the most of the world live in a less nice place. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I'm very hesitant on like that factfulness or really like reading statistics. It's like you put these all into numbers, but I think even from his point of view, he's also skewed in some ways. Let's take what you were trying to say. Like, what, what were you trying to say? Like, we live in nicer areas. I'm just saying that we have a veil because we're not living in poverty. Yeah, but that statement then requires us to define poverty. Sure, compared to me, yes, everybody in the Philippines and like India are in poverty, but relative to themselves, right, which is the facts, relative to their local, they're not in poverty. That is the reality. Relative to their standard of living. And I think that's what's deceiving a lot of times that like we think like especially in America, we think everybody else is just so much worse off than we are. But the reality is they're not. I don't think they're everyone's worse off. I just think they're it's a lot more extreme in other places. I think there's definitely extremes in places, but then you have to define what's a lot. And again, I think in a lot of places, even going to Colombia or Brazil, where there is extreme poverty, most people actually just have a normal life. Again, what we would consider like poverty or extreme poverty for them, it's just like, it's a good life. That's why I'm trying to push you on this is like, we're trying to find what is a terrible life, what is a life of extreme poverty based on our standards. But the reality of somebody else living in that is like, they probably have more joy and happiness than we do because it's a less materialistic society. You know, I, I give you a million reasons as to why. As long as they have like food. But I'm saying like, we don't know that. We don't know that because you don't live like they do. There's no way. We can't say that they have more joy or they're happier. Like, we don't know. Well, I can make the same. We can't say that they're like less joyful or that they're, they're in poverty. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, it's very, what you're saying of like, it's like the rest of the world is kind of just fine. And I don't know. There's a lot of points here. I mean, we talked about like gun control and like, <laughs> like breaking. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, when I do travel to those places, like I am just constantly surprised at how much better off people are than we think they are. Again, relative to how we define quality of living. Dude, I don't know, man. When I went to Vietnam, I actually had the opposite realization. But that's, are you looking at it from your own perspective, uh, your own comparison of your life? Because I don't even think our standard is the right standard sometimes. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think, we, that's what I'm saying. Like we have a veil because we can't see past what we know. Anything that we kind of discuss, it's going to be, everyone has a bias, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's that was my point. But I, I don't agree that I don't agree with that we can't see past that. We can. We just go there and talk to them and ask them about their lives and talk to them about their lives. Maybe that's the core of what, what we're trying to get at here is that I think for you, you struggle because you struggle to be able to see from their perspective, right? And so from your perspective, the world is a, is not a great place or it's not a hopeful place. Whereas like I actually try to see it from their perspective instead of from my perspective. And from their perspective, their lives are great by their standards, by their you know beliefs or whatnot, and they're happy. And so like, there's no reason for me to be unhappy that they don't have what I have. For me to think like the world's still in a terrible place. And it's like, in reality, it's like, from their perspective, it's not, <laughs> you know, from my perspective in comparison, comparing them to my life, it, it is. You were asking me like, how do I have hope? How do I have hope for the world that like the world is fine? Like you said. Well, I, I was thinking more along the lines of like, how do you trust yourself? How do you know that this is going to get any better? And then that's when you brought up the whole factfulness book. Yeah, yeah. He says, statistically, it is getting better. And statistics are, again, I mean, these, these are not just numbers. though. They're, it's not just quantitative data. It's qualitative data as well. You go there and you see that it's like, it's not that bad. Like their lives aren't that bad. Maybe I'm, I'm just thinking like, yeah, like maybe the average person is getting better, but I just think the people in wealth and in power are just getting that much worse. I see it becoming more dark dystopian versus like everyone's happy. I think that's where it's, it would be helpful to listen to some of these biographies and look back and see how bad, how it goes through cycles. Everything goes through cycles. Because again, back to what I was saying earlier, these ultra rich people, it's not sustainable. They can't stay that way without the rest of the people being happy because long term, it's not sustainable. Long term, like the masses will rise up and fucking like take over. Power itself is not inherently bad. Is a good power? Is a bad power? There are rich people that are doing good things with their money. There are rich people that are doing terrible things with their money. There are people in power of companies that are doing good things. And then there's people like Mark Zuckerberg that just like doesn't give a shit, you know, like <laughs> about like how Facebook impacts the world, right? Or he didn't give a shit for the past two decades. Now he's trying to. Or he's starting to at least. But what I'm trying to say is that like, to your exact point, there's so many things out of our control that it's almost pointless to worry about them. I can't control the weather. I don't worry about the weather. And there's certain forces outside of my control that I can't, I just choose not to worry about because outside, what I choose to worry about is what's within my control. I think that's very different than having hope or thinking that you're like trusting that the world would get better versus not worrying about it. Yeah, but that's what builds trust for me. You ask me how I, how I build trust, like that's what builds trust for me is I have trust that like, sure, there's this one ultra powerful billionaire, but there's like a million or tens of millions of people who will fight against ultimately in their own way against this evil billionaire by, for example, not buying their shit or doing something. Like, I don't think there's such an imbalance of power where those people are all powerful. I guess is what is what I'm trying to say, which which is why I bring up those all those examples of like how much their power depends on us. Their power is not independent. I agree what you're saying that they're going to rely on the people, but I'm not as trusting as you <laughs> and people. Then I guess I would say I 
It definitely used to be that way. I think the average person just doesn't give a fuck. I think if like you want to live a more joyful life, you have to trust. You have to blind trust that things are going to work out because there, there is no other alternative. That's the one thing I think people don't realize. The other alternative is to not trust anything. And then there is no positive outcome of that. No, I, I think the other thing is just trusting in what you can control. Oh, for sure. Maybe what you're getting at is like to avert not having to trust the outside world is like you just ignore it. Not necessarily like ignoring what, what everything else, but like trusting in your own, in what you can control. Yeah, I get like the sun's going to come up the next day. I trust that. It's like just built into us. We all believe it. But I'm talking more about like trusting yourself is more trusting what you can do, the actions that you have in control. I'm more curious on how you build trust in yourself in the actions that you take versus these existential things of trusting other people to do the right thing or, you know, because I, I, I definitely don't. Ah, I see your point. Okay. Right. So, so the only reason I bring that up, James, is I feel like, and this may not apply to you, but I feel like a lot of people I know, they are distracted by the outside world, where they don't even have time to like trust themselves. They're a distrustful society and that's where all their focus is. Because when you do read the news every single day, it's just like you can, you know, and doom scroll right on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, I definitely don't. It's not that I don't care. It's just we can't do anything about it unless I'm going to fly to Turkey or Syria right now and help out somehow. Right. You, you can't fly to Turkey you, and save the women in Iran and stop the Russians in Ukraine. You just can't do all three. I can't even do one. But yeah, so you hear what I'm saying? Like, I think it's more trusting in what you do and what you can control. Mm. Well, think about that. I think that's what trust is, right? Yeah. And I think that's what you're doing. You have faith. I totally agree that things are cyclical. But I also just, maybe that this whole Trump thing, it really kind of shattered my belief in people. Anyways, <laughs> Sean and James just argue about... <laughs> We're trying to figure out our different points of view on trust and faith and whatnot. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We're always very grateful for every single person that tunes in. We'll talk to you guys next week. Have a great week.